We have been taking the last two weeks to talk about the Bible, and I want to jump right into it uh, for time's sake to make sure that we get into everything that I'm meaning to get to today. Um, but if you missed last week's sermon, you can get it at our, um, on our OSC Connect app. Just go to your Play Store, your App Store, and get the OSC Connect app. And when you're on the app, when you open it up, you'll see that there's a button called Media, and then you choose Listen, and then you simply choose the title uh, of the sermon that you wish to listen to. The last one was called, Can I Trust the Bible? And I mean, I wish I could even summarize, but we just don't have time today to summarize last week's message. So you just have to go and look at all the awesome reasons we have as Christians why the Bible is a reliable document and why we should take its claims very, very seriously. And that there's nothing that disqualifies the Bible from being a document that should be trusted. Um, And so I want to get into today about, last week I said we're going to talk about how do I read and interpret the Bible. And I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes we just don't know where to start. We just don't know how to make and what to make of what we read. And I want to speak into that a little bit today to give you some pointers that help you get the most out of your Bible reading. I'll remind you of uh, Smith Wigglesworth's Bible, the inscription in the back of his Bible that says, don't compare this book with others. Comparisons are dangerous. Never think or say that this book contains the words of God, because it is the word of God. That was Smith Wigglesworth's approach to scripture. And if you don't know him, he was just an, he was just an ordinary man. He was a plumber in England and he got a hold of Jesus. He got a hold of the Word, and he had an unscrupulous faith in God's Word. He trusted it with everything in him, and he did amazing, amazing work for God. Miracles. He was a preacher, and he led so many people to Jesus. He raised people from the dead. He healed thousands um, in the name of Christ. And uh, his approach to sharing Scripture is something that I've always held dear to. Um, he always said, if God said it, that, that settles it. If God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And it's, it's, it's kind of a, an attitude we should have about Scripture. But let's get into the Scripture today, um, in 2 Timothy 3. We've read some of this last week as well. It says the following. Verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out of God, out by God, and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Not just for no reason, but verse 17 says, That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is really important that every Christian reads the Bible for himself. There was a whole epic moment in church history based on one godly man's desire to not let the Bible be secluded somewhere in the hands of professional clergymen who alone had access, could understand and interpret and tell people what God's will for their lives was. This man led a completely new way of understanding God's heart about Scripture. And this moment is called the Protestant Reformation. You can go and watch a movie called Luther. And you'll learn more about the Protestant Reformation and why it is such an important moment. But out of that Reformation came the Bible for every man. Out of that Reformation came truths from Scripture that up to that point was, was kind of lost in the church world. That got rediscovered by this man who read the Scriptures and wanted each and every man alive to be able to read the Scriptures for themselves. You can't live on secondary faith. You can't live on my faith. I can't live on your faith. Because I am not where you are when you're facing a deep and a dark moment. Now sure, sometimes you can call somebody, but let's be honest, it's not always possible for us to reach out to friends around us. We have to learn how to trust God for ourselves. And the only way we can learn to trust God for ourselves is if we learn how to read the Bible. Because the Bible says that faith comes to us by hearing and our initial faith, our faith for salvation comes to us by hearing the message concerning Christ. That's Romans 10, 17. 
But faith also comes for every other thing that we need to accomplish in life. By what we hear. And so that's why it's so important that what we say about ourselves, what we allow others to say to us and believe, we be very careful about that. Because we will soon find ourselves believing things about us that we have been hearing perpetually if we don't uh, guard our hearts and our minds to, to what comes into it. God wants to build our faith for His work and for His purposes and for His promises for our life. He wants to build our faith to the point where we will, we will stand and be willing to receive and be able to receive that. But in order to do so, we have to read the Bible for ourselves. Um, faith for everything comes through hearing. That means that you can also have faith in a lie. We can be sold lies. And people are very passionately these days defending lies. Because they have not been shared the truth of Jesus Christ. They have not been shared the truth of God's principles and God's word. Maybe they've thought of God's word as good suggestions or maybe a good guide to life, but not essential to every aspect of life. Let me tell you, God's word is essential to every aspect of life. I'll say it this way. In every aspect of life that you do not apply the word of God, you will lose life. Life will drain away from you in every aspect of, God, of life where you don't apply His Word. And, and, and sometimes I find that even Christians today, and I'm quite concerned about this, even Christians today find themselves often um, you know, basing their lives and basing their faith on, on man's sayings rather than the Scriptures themselves. And I'm concerned sometimes where, when people make more of the, you know, the quirky or the poetic kind of, you know, one-liners that pastors throw. And I use those, right? I, I do, because we want to we connect what the truth of God means to where we're at in our lives, you know, in reality. And so we do use forms of communication that makes it become real to us. But my concern is that people make more of those little one-liners than they make of Scripture itself. And I would rather have you memorize Scripture and quote Jesus than remember what I said and quote me. Can I get an amen for that? Our lives should be really founded on Scripture, on the Bible. And so before you memorize anything that any pastor or any quirky saying that somebody is out there is doing, try to memorize a Scripture verse instead and see that you apply that Scripture verse in your life. Because that will lead to life. The Bible is the bread of life. Psalm 119 says this. says this. And, 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 and let this sink into your spirit this morning. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Is that something you can declare today? Do you delight as much in God's word and in his testimonies as you delight in all riches? Verse 15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statues and I will not forget your word. Man, it's my heart's desire that we will be a people of God's word. That we will base our opinions, our reason, our, um, uh, uh, our decisions on the principles and truths that we extract from God's word. The psalmist says that it's God's word that is our power against sin and temptation, not man's words. It says that when God's word gets sent out, it accomplishes whatever it is meant to do. It does not return to him void. Let me tell you, many of my words return to me void. But where my words echo the words of God, I've seen great effect in the people, in the lives of people. So I want to share with you a couple of crucial starting points because we're talking about how do I read the Bible? How do I interpret the Bible? Crucial starting points, somewhat, or you can refer to them as assumptions that we need to hold onto when we approach God's Word. Number one, the Bible is meant to be understood. The Bible is meant to be understood. It is not written in such a mystical kind of you know, language or you know, way so as to have everything in it be, you know, hidden meanings that needs to get, you know, you need revelation in order to be able to do anything about it. No, in fact, the Bible was written for ordinary men by ordinary men. 
It was written in ordinary language. There is just a couple of the writings in the New Testament that were written by people that, that had you know, higher education. The rest was written by normal people who used everyday language to write it. It was meant to be understood. And so when you read the Bible, often you need to realize that it's the, it's the simple understanding of it that is powerful. It is not the, the, oh, wow, that is so, you know, nobody's ever thought of this thought before. I have a question about that. But it's mostly like, oh, it's so simple, I missed it. The second one is that um, even though it's meant to be understood, understanding is not the highest (laughs) thing that the Bible asks of us. In fact, it's actually that the Bible is meant to be obeyed. The Bible is meant to be obeyed. In other words, it is no, it's not okay for us to know a lot of the Bible but not actually live it. In fact, the Bible wants to come on the inside of our hearts to change our inner motivation so that we will have a desire to live according to it, that we will love its precepts like the psalmist wrote. The second thing is that the writings of the Bible have one meaning. And it was meant for a specific audience, which is actually not us. But it was written for us as well. But this is an important aspect of coming to the Bible. Because you have to realize that the people who wrote it, wrote it in real life. And they did not necessarily think about us while they were writing it. They were thinking about people that was busy living at that time. And they wrote to them the precepts and the principles of God. And therefore, it had a specific meaning for that time, for those people. And yet it has a thousand applications that is still relevant to us today. And for us, we use the Bible in an application manner. We say, what did this mean to those people? And what does that mean? How does that apply to my life today? Remember, I said, all Scripture, I read that verse, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is usable to train us, to teach us, to correct us. All of it is. But in order for it to really teach us correctly, we have to understand this underlying assumption that Scripture has a meaning and it was meant to convey a message to particular people and that we get to learn from that and apply the principle to our lives. And the fourth understanding, the, 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 the way that we come to the Bible, the way we have to approach the Bible to, in order to read it correctly and interpret it correctly is that metaphorically speaking, the Old Testament is like a shadow and the New Testament is like the real, op- is like the real object. It's the reality. The Old Testament is the shadow that was cast by the real object. In other words, if I'm going to have to look for the details, I'm not going to look. I'm 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 going to focus on the New Testament and allow the New Testament to help me understand the Old Testament, not the other way around. Okay. So these are four really crucial principles that we have to assume to our lives if we want to interpret the Bible correctly. So, how many of you remember our analogy last week about the rope? Okay. Did any of you try this week to read, to observe, to pray, and to execute the Bible, to live it out? Rope is a useful thing. This can tie things down to make, secure it. This can pull you out of a mess if you're stuck in mud. Ropes are good for a lot of, a lot of things. And so if you can remember the word rope, you can remember how to approach reading the Bible and get the most out of it. With these four assumptions in place, let us go into and look at what these, uh, these, these, um, uh, these, these words mean in, 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 in a little bit more detail today. The first one was for reading. And some of you might have asked, you know, where do I start reading the Bible? Where do I start? So I want to say something a little bit about the Bible, and then I'll show you a bit more about how to read the Bible and where to start. The first thing is that the Bible is more, it's not necessarily a book that was written by one person. As we discussed last week, it was written by many people. So it's more like a library, a library of different writings, different, um, you know, it has, it has uh, poems, it has lamentation letters, it has real letters that was actually physically posted to people. Um, it has biographies, and then it has history, um, and, and accounts of, of, of things. Um, and, and all of this was compiled together into what we today call the Bible. And this is important to know because you kind of approach 
a poetic book a little different than you do a historical, factual account of something that happened. Would you agree? The poetic book is going to contain a lot more, you know, um, similes and metaphors. And, 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 and it's going to describe things uh, without necessarily saying the thing like it was, like it is. Whereas the historic book has to, ha- has to be on point with all of its facts. And there's going to be far less symbolic language used in, in something like that. And so when you approach each of these um, different genres, we call them, um, you have to understand which one you're reading. All right? And, and time will fail me today to go into every single one of them. But what I do want to refer you to is a project called the Bible Project. So if you go on YouTube and you type in the search bar, the Bible Project, and then you just type in whatever book name, let's say Matthew or Luke, the Bible Project, Luke, it throws up a little video that explains a lot about each book of the Bible. And let me tell you, these little little eight minute, six to eight minute videos that talks about each little book of the Bible to explain who wrote it, how it was written, uh, how it was structured, what is the, 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 the overarching messages that come from this book, and then helps you delve into the detail of it. It's, it's incredible to give you perspective about how to and what to expect from each of these books. And so if you just, if you just know today that there is different Different approaches to some of these, what we call books. Now, they weren't all books. Some were letters and, and some were actually just you know, historic accounts. But we call them books. And there are 66 of them in the Bible. All right? and, and they were compiled in a very, very particular manner. So have you ever thought who got to decide which, you know, how, how, how the Bible was put together? Have you ever thought about that? Okay? Um, sometimes we think you know, because of that movie, The Da Vinci Code. I mean, have you ever seen that movie before? Okay, don't go watch it. It's, a, it's baloney. Um, that, that this guy, this leader in the past called Constantine, that for political reasons, you know, he had to uh, um, get the church leaders together, um, which is true, but that he co- compiled the Bible and decided which books would go to further his political, um, you know, uh, agenda rather than others. There is nothing further from the truth than that. Actually, the Bible canon wasn't even put together at this meeting. That is an historic fact. It did take place. It, wasn't even, it didn't even take place at that time. It took place, I think, about 20 or 25 years later when church leaders came together. And they were considering a plethora of ancient writings. And this happened in around um, 390, 95, 97, thereabouts, eight, uh, after Jesus Christ. Which means that um, it was way after Constantine's whole um, meeting. These leaders came together and there's been many writings. So they had, to just, they had to sift through which were actually writings that they could trust. And like last week I, st- I spoke about all the different tests and all the ways that they vetted all these uh, writings. Each and every one of those writings were vetted according to that pattern and the ones that had any errors, even if it was slightly, was just removed from the Bible. Now there are some factions in, um, in Christianity that would you know, try to include other books, other writings as scripture. Um, but the problem is, is that none other books or writings than the 66 ones we have in the Bible reflect the nature of a perfect God that spoke a perfect word without errors to people to guide them in these important matters of life. And I don't know about you, but if something has errors in it, I don't want to trust it with my life. And so you'd best not dabble around in those other books that some claim to be Scripture because they failed the tests of accuracy and reliability. And because of that, they cannot be relevant. And so the 66 books you have in the Bible are the only writings we currently have that is inerrant and of which we can claim that these books were breathed by God and they are able to lead us into life. And my advice to you is just do not concern yourself with any of these other books. And, and do not concern you with any of the advocates for it. Because it simply isn't truth. It is, um, it is writings uh, that, that did not make the cut of inerrancy. So the Bible you have is, has all the answers you need to, to live and get saved and live a godly life. Now, 
many of us know, I know some of this is, we kind of know this, but it's important to note that the Bible has two sections. It is the Old Testament and it has the New Testament. And these testaments are actually representative of two different covenants, time periods where God had two different covenants with mankind. The first one was predominantly with the nation of Israel. The second one is with all mankind. And because there is differences in the two covenants, we have to make sure that whatever we read in the Old Testament runs through the filter of the New Testament before we just take it at face value. In other words, there are things about animal sacrifices in the Bible that we don't do anymore. Am I correct? I hope so. Because the New Testament had declared that Jesus was the final and ultimate sacrifice necessary to reconcile man, to pay for man's sin. And so there are certain practices in the Old Testament that we don't do anymore as Christians. Because it has to pass through the filter of the New Testament before we say, okay, this is still something that we're going to do. Um, so the best way to start reading the Bible is to start with the New Testament. Start with the Gospels and go on to the letters that Paul wrote. Because they contain the most and the bulk of all the teaching of the life of Jesus. If you want to study theology, study the life of Jesus. He is the true reflection of the Father. Theology is the study of God, by the way. It's not the study of all sorts of um, rules and regulations and all of that. In fact, it is actually the study of God that helps us understand in His light, we see light, how we ought to be living. But you start with the New Testament and you learn all of what, the, all of what God n now asks mankind to listen to, to build into their lives, to respond to. And as you learn and listen that, you become more aware and become more familiar with that. And you read the Old Testament, you start seeing, oh, that is what the Old Testament refers to. Am I making it clear? It's like when you look at a shadow, you don't go to the shadow and ask yourself, mm, I wonder what color that is. No, you go to the real man, you go, all right, salmon shirt. You go to the real object to find the details. And that's the way we need to do it. We need to look to the New Testament for the details about Christian living. And then it helps us to understand the Old Testament again. St. Augustine, he, he explained it like this. He said, the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed. So if you understand the New Testament and you start reading the Old Testament, you see the whole New Testament unfold in the Old Testament. You see all the, all the similarities. Um, and there's so many symbols and so many accounts of people's lives that are, that are, um, uh, um, that are uh, pictures of Jesus Christ and the principles of what He was going to teach. And some, of, some are even mentioned in, in the New Testament. When Peter speaks about baptism, he refers to the ark. Because the ark was a picture, and it was a real event, but the, the ark was also a picture of what it means to be saved and get baptized. And so you understand the Old Testament better once you understand the New Testament. So you start with the Gospels. The easiest one to start with is the book of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. It's also considered to be the first one that was written. But it is very to the point, straight up, doesn't have any um, you know, misunderstandings in Mark. It's easy to understand because it talks about everything that Jesus did and what we need to do. And so it gets you going fast in your Christian life. And then you go on to the other Gospels and you write Paul's letters. And uh, I'm speaking about rope, remember? Because when we read, we want to make sure that we understand in which side of the book we are. And this is important, because if you read in the Old Testament, like Ryan this morning, he, he extracted verses from Isaiah, we need to understand that those promises he referred to was not for us. The actual promises was for Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem during that time. But what do we get from that verse then? We get application. If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it means that the same God 
who had that heart for those people that was considered His people at that point, He will have the same heart for us right now who are His people. And He will let His purposes and His, His promises prevail over our lives. And we can trust and we can learn from how He interacted with those people that He is going to be faithful to us as well. And that we can take the promise and apply it to our situation as a promise, but not the particularity of that promise. Nobody here is going to inherit Jerusalem. Hello. But we learn from that and are able to apply what I'm trusting God for. He's going to help me to take it in. I'm going to get to another example a little later. Um, so it's important that you, um, that you know which book, which side of the book you are in and which book you are in. And it takes just a little bit of understanding to know which little bit of looking into it, which books are history books, which books are poetic books, which books are prophetic books, which books are New Testament writings, biographies, letters, etc. If you, um, you want to know which parts of the Old Testament you need to still apply to your life, you, you, you go look in the New Testament. And if it reoccurs in the New Testament, you know that this was not stopped or changed. Remember, the Bible says that Jesus did not come to abandon or abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. Which means that He fulfilled the requirements of the law in order to be righteous before God. And because of His death and resurrection, now He can offer us salvation. Because He already fulfilled the requirements for righteousness of the law. That means that there are some parts of the law that carries through to the New Testament. But they are affected by the cross. And you have to read it in the light of the cross to know whether you are doing it out of a religious work that is an attempt to become righteous or whether you are doing it as an act of love because you have been made righteous because of the cross. And so you always look at that. You always make sure that you know where you are. This answers so many questions about the Sabbath, about tithing, about sexual conduct, about dietary restrictions, about a lot of things that you read about in the Old Testament and you wonder, is this still apply in the New Testament? I want to take a quick moment to talk about the Sabbath. For example, keeping the Sabbath on the Saturday while doing no work, not even walking further than a limited distance, is changed in the New Testament to the principle of resting from our work in Christ. The Sabbath in the Old Testament was a shadow. The reality is that we get to rest from our work in Jesus Christ for, for, for our uh, uh, attempt to become saved. The shadow, the reality. We focus on the reality to find details. Limit, it's, it's a change in the, New, to, to, in the New Testament to the principle of resting in Christ from our attempts to satisfy the law by our good works. And at the same time, keeping the principle of rest from work to dedicate time to God in place. But the particularities about the day and the, the, the manner in which and all that, that passes through the filter and most of that stays behind. And what we get on this side is we get a principle, no longer a law, that if you don't comply to it, you sin. We get a principle that says, you no longer have to work for your salvation. You now get saved by your faith in Jesus Christ. But by the way, I instituted the Sabbath for man because y'all need rest. You need to rest and dedicate time to me. You need to honor me with every resource I've given you. Also, your time. We can talk about all of that. Let's look at the tithe real quick. Reading the Old Testament reveals that tithing was not introduced by any law. Rather, it was a voluntary pledge of allegiance to God by Abraham, the father of our faith. So how does that pass through the cross? Voluntary pledge of allegiance to God. It passes through perfectly. Passes through perfectly. And that's why in the New Testament time, we can still speak about the tithe and we can still apply the principle of honoring God with the first fruits of our wealth, of our resources. 
Because it's not a law that got stuck on the cross and now we don't, need, don't have to do it any longer. No, if you honor God, you will do it. In fact, when the covenant of grace comes, it empowers us to do even more. This has not changed in the New Testament, but here what is changed. The law and the curse for not doing it is removed. The law and the curse for not doing it is removed. That means if you don't pay your tithe, you will not be cursed. Because Jesus has come and He's removed that. But He is calling you unto the principle that says, Honor me, even with your finances. It's become a relational thing now. Like when Abraham pledged his tithe unto Melchizedek, who was the prince of peace, who was the foreshadow of Jesus Christ. He did it from a heart of willingness. That's why the Bible has things to say like, God loves a cheerful giver. Let when, you, when I come, let you give, not from compulsion, but from the heart. That is what passes through in the New Testament. The second part is observing. We're reading. We're making sure we know which part of the book we're in. We're making sure that we look to the New Testament to see which parts of the Old Testament still needs to get applied to our lives. We understand that this was written for a specific audience. This was written for um, a specific time. And so as we start observing, we now learn more about what these books are about and what are their meaning and how do we apply them to our lives. See, the more we get to know the Bible, the more God's law gets written on our hearts. And then obedience becomes an act of my own will, not an act of compulsion. Obedience relationship, not compulsion. Change in our hearts happens because we start allowing the Holy Spirit to form and to establish us in our new identity. And we've become sons and daughters of God. That needs to influence the way we think about ourselves. We start seeing ourselves differently. And then we all of a sudden realize, I don't want to do that anymore. This is not who I am. I've been changed. You can only get that if you read the Bible for yourself. And you see and understand those words that are coming from God to you and changes you. The Bible talks about looking into the Bible as looking into the perfect law of love. Looking into a mirror that reflects Jesus' image of yourself to you. Have you ever seen that little image of the cat staring into the water pond and the reflection staring back at him as a lion? That's what happens to you when you read the Bible. Your true nature in Christ Jesus stays back at you. And you know why that's difficult sometimes? Because I know where I'm at. <laughs> it's not that right now. <laughs> but it's not meant to condemn you. It's meant to affirm you. It's meant to let you know this is who you are so that you can stand up and say, where I am right now, I am not going to stay because this is not who I am. The Bible reveals to me who I am. And I'm going to strive towards that I'm going to strive towards that. But as we're trying to interpret the meaning of Scripture so that we'll know how to accurately apply it to our lives, we have to know that context is important. You've heard this say many times, right? You have to read the Bible in context. Well, what does that mean? Well, it simply means this, that the whole book gives context to every one of the books. And every one of those little books gives context to the, all the chapters that are inside that book. And every one of those chapters gives context to particular verses with, you know, to, to, to each chapter. And then the chapter gives context to the little verse that's in the chapter. Okay? Psalm, Psalm 119 says this, oh, verse 160, The sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word. That's why you cannot take one little particular verse and just create a doctrine that you like, about, uh, like out of it. And that's what often happens when scriptural error takes place is people isolate particular verses because it makes them feel good or hopeful or something. And then they take that verse and they take it out of, out of the context of the Bible. So here's the principle you have to remember when you're observing. You have to allow scripture to interpret scripture. The Bible has to interpret itself. 
In other words, you can't form a belief about a particular verse unless there are a council of scriptures around it that affirms your understanding and your belief about that scripture. And if there isn't, you're interpreting it wrong. Because there is a way to interpret the Bible wrong. And many have done so. And the effects are devastating. So last week we said that, you know, when I start observing, I have to ask the question, what does this show me about God? What does this show me about me? What is this, um, what action words, what commands, what, what uh, uh, you know, warnings and things are there to heed and to obey? Uh, in addition to that, I have to observe. Who wrote this? Is he in the Old and the New Testament? Who wrote it? Who, to whom did he write it? Did he just write it to, to you know, kind of in general as, a, as an account of what happened? Or was it even specifically addressed to particular people like some of Paul's letters? That helps me extract the true meaning of Scripture so that I can apply it to every aspect of my life. Let's look at a particular verse in Joshua 1 verse 3. A very familiar verse. Okay? It says the following. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. How many of you have heard that quoted in life? How many of you have used that verse to say, where my foot shall tread, God gives me that place. I've done that. <laughs> okay? <laughs> what does that really mean? This verse is connected to a context in which God is walking with the Israelites and He's leading them towards a promise of a physical geographical inheritance of land. And He is saying, as you step into this place, every place your foot steps on, I have given to you. Now this has to make you think, well, what if Joshua decided to go to a different place? Would that have also been his inheritance? No. It would not have. So, a little application that we draw from this is that I can't just decide to go just anywhere and think that I'm going to take over. I have to go where God is actually leading me in order for this to apply to me. Because Joshua couldn't just go anywhere. They did not inherit the desert, even though they chose to walk there for many years. The only place that they did eventually inherit was the place that God had told them to go to, that He wanted to give to them. So this is a very specific promise to a very specific people, right? None of us are going to go and live in Canaan. Am I right? Who has property in Israel? Who wants property in Israel? Meh, meh. Okay, I'll take it. But I don't want it necessarily, right? So the promise isn't necessarily for, for us in particular and the promise is not for us to get physical land either. Because some might think, like, oh, well, God gave them physical land. That means God must give physical land to everybody. No. But what is the application here? The application here is that it doesn't matter where God sends me. If God sends me there, if I step into that place, I can have the confidence that God's purposes will prevail over me and for that place by fact of the matter that I have come and I'm applying my faith to, to uh, obey and live it out. By fact of the matter uh, that, 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 that I obeyed and I'm stepping into this opportunity, I can know without a shadow of a doubt that my God is going to help me accomplish what it is that He has set me out to do in this place. That is the application that I draw from this particular verse. No matter where I go, if God sends me there, He will enable me to live out His purposes. But I can draw other facts from this as well. Just because God gives me a promise doesn't mean it's going to fall into my lap. I don't know if you know the rest of the story, but these guys go through multiple battles. Multiple battles. They go through setbacks. They go through conflict. They go through, through disappointments. All on the journey of receiving the promise that God made to him. Everywhere your foot tread I shall give to you. 
God's promises are not just going to fall into our lap. We have to contend for them in our faith. And we know today that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against ideas. Our battle is against opinions that are contrary to Scripture. And our, our, our attack to that is through prayer and through, through sharing the truth and, and making sure that we bring correction and, 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 and help people understand what the truth is. That is how we face this battle. But there is a battle to be fought for this world. And it's not just going to come without... Because there's an enemy. And he doesn't want to just give it up. And we have to take it. That's observing. And now I've started saying, okay, good. I see that God is sending me to this place. I see that God said to Joshua, um, um, do not fear. I see God said to him, Every, everywhere your foot tread, I will give to you. Now it's time to start praying that. And that's the P of the rope. It's important that you pray scripture. It's important that you pray it over your own life and that you pray it over things around you. Father, I come in the name of Jesus and I thank you that Acadia will be saved. Lord, I declare this a drug-free place. We call the mighty name of Jesus over this area and we command all the darkness here to leave in your name. We declare that crime will fall, violence will fall, divorce rates will fall, rebellion will decrease in the name of Jesus. We lift up the name of Jesus for there is no other name in this place that men can be saved by, Lord. We pray that your kingdom come, Father. Let your will be done in this place. Because we understand you have put us here for a reason. And as I walk, and as I drive through town, as I walk through, drive through, through Acadia Parish, I'm praying, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done in this place. You said to Joshua that you will give him the place that he sets his foot on. Lord, I'm driving here, and I'm contending for your kingdom to come here. I take that scripture, I take that promise, the promise of God's character applied to Joshua's life, and I use it in my own life for us here, for our church. We also pray things like, Lord, we submit to your guidance. Submit to your will, Father. Even, uh, even if I don't understand it, even if it goes against my preference, Lord, we will not follow our own cleverness or our own good intentions. We obey your principles, rather, at all times, no matter what the situation. We consecrate our hearts to the Lord when we learn from Scripture how He wants us to respond. You can pray like this. Over every challenge, over every person that you love, over people that aren't saved yet, over your area, over your workplace, over the projects that you are busy with, the things that you need to accomplish, the goals that you need to meet. You can pray God's word like this over those situations. We can pray over every challenge and we can see ourselves as victorious because we have this promise of victory. We don't have to see ourselves as victims. We have the living God of the universe living on the inside of us. And with that perspective, we stand tall in this life. And we declare His purposes and His promises over this place. Even if things are tough right now. Even if you are in such a place where you don't even know what to pray. That's why the Holy Spirit is there. And that's why He has given us the spiritual prayer language. We can pray in tongues over situations, praying the perfect will of God, and at the same time building ourselves up according to our most holy faith. God wants us to pray His Scripture over this area. And that is not the work of the prayer ministry. That is for every single Christian. Can I get an amen? Come on, guys. If we read scripture like this, it builds our faith. And faith always leads to action. Faith always leads to action. If it's not action yet, it's not faith yet. It may be hope, it may be good intention, but it's not faith yet. Because faith eventually does lead to action. And so that's the E of rope. Read, observe, pray, execute. 2 Timothy 3.17 says that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. There is work to be done. There are people's lives that need to be saved. There are things in our society that needs correcting, that needs uplifting and upbuilding again. There is a lot of work that needs to be done. But God wants to prepare each and every one of us to take part in His work. So while we're talking through and observing, we're, we're asking God, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do I execute your truth? How do I do it? How, how do you want me to respond to what I'm reading? 
God may say something like, you know that co-worker of yours? I need you to go tell them something from me, a message from me. I need you to tell them how much I love them and how much I care for them. Or God might say, I need you to sit here. I need you to fast. I need you to pray. Will you spend time with me during your lunch hours this week and just, and just not eat, but just come sit with me and pray. Pray for your life. Pray for your family's life. Pray for your school. Pray for things around you. God might say, hey, you know what? I want you to start a business that'll provide work for people. I want you to start a nonprofit that'll serve the community. I want you to, whatever the case may be, God might say different things to different people, but our heart needs to be, Lord God, we're ready to live this word out. God might say to you, I need you to run for student council so that you can be a voice for me amongst the students. God might say, I need you to run for public office. Come on now. There is, God might say, I need you to become a lawyer. Yes, he still says that. I always pick on lawyers. But God needs Christians in each and every one of those fields. Because that's where we establish the kingdom of God in all of life. That's the outside work. But God might say something like, hey, it's time for you to start honoring me with your time. It's time for you to start stop prioritizing me over your earthly pursuits. And God wants to do an inner work on the inside of our hearts. But we'll only have the faith to actually respond to it if we spend time in His Word. When God tells you, I need you to change that habit. I need you to replace that with something that honors me. You're going to need the faith to do it. And that's why every man needs to have their own Bible, read their own Bible, and build their own faith. Every person. Sometimes we want to bargain with God. God, if you make me rich, I'll give money to the church. No. As you obey God, He will give you the ability to become as rich as your character can handle. But it starts with you obeying Him. It starts with you obeying Him. James 1, 2, 22 says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only. And that's why it's so important that we remember that the Bible is meant to be understood. <laughs> it's meant to be obeyed. One John five three says, "This is love for God that you obey His commandments." I'm letting us hang here for a little bit because I, I really want to stress the point that God saved us so that we can live for Him. He saved us, and we belong to Him, and He has a great life for us, but it involves us laying down our idea of our life and receiving what He has in, in store for us. And that's a scary moment, but God is trustful, trustworthy. He's a good God. And if you do that, you'll find a life that you could have never imagined was possible. And I know many people in this room that will attest to that. Let's all stand today. We close. Father, we want to thank you for the awesome, awesome Bible that you gave us. Lord, thank you that you've done everything needed to preserve those words for us. So that even in this day and age, in a year as crazy as 2020, we have something so consistent, so reliable, so true, that we can, we can be found on and not falter, not stumble, because this is a rock that cannot be moved. Lord, I pray for each person here today that we will take our position on this rock. 
and that we will base our very lives and our on it, Lord God, everything we, we believe and think, that it will come from Scripture, Lord, not from man. And I pray, Lord, as people put their noses into these pages, that they will see you. They'll see you, Jesus. They'll see you with your arms stretched open, inviting them to come in for, for a time of fellowship, to come build relationship. I pray that they'll realize that this book is not a condemnation book. It's an affirmation book. And it teaches us who we truly are in you. We love you, Lord. And I, I, want, I want to ask if there's anybody here today, which if you've not, you've not made a decision to put your faith in, in the actual core message of this Bible, which is that, Jesus Christ came, lived, a man, lived as a man and died on a cross, a death that you and I are destined to die outside of Him. But He did it in our place so that you and I don't have to if we will put our faith and our trust in Him. That's the core message of the Scripture. And if you haven't made a decision to put your faith in that today, I want to give you an opportunity to acknowledge Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. So with every eye closed and people just privately spending time with God, if you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ today and acknowledge Him as Lord, why don't you lift your hand right up, or you lift your hand up right now, and I'll pray over you. The Bible says a miracle will take place in your heart, and you'll become a child of God in an instant. The Holy Spirit will take residence in your heart and seal you into the day of salvation. I invite you to keep wrestling with that question. Will you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And when you made a decision, I invite you to come and share that decision with us so that we can just celebrate that moment with you. Father, we glorify you. Your work in our hearts, Lord, is unprecedented. There is nothing like it. And I pray for each person who's on a journey to discover that answer for themselves that by your Holy Spirit, you will confirm all things to them and lead them to salvation. We pray that today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.